Well, I'd love to introduce myself. As Riley said, my name uh, is Chris and I'm part of the leadership team here at Beyond. And if you're just touching base with us tonight, we are on the tail end. We're wrapping up a series that we've been doing here at Beyond called The Man Behind the Beard. And our agenda with this idea is really, really simple. Uh, With the lead into Easter, a lot of people uh, maybe think about going back to church or maybe here or are a little bit more conscious of this idea of Ah, uh, yeah, isn't Easter that time where that Jesus guy like was born or maybe like died or did that thing or whatever, whatever it is you think that's associated with Easter. And so we thought, why don't we talk about it? Why don't we talk about it? Because at the center of the Christian faith is a man who we believe uh, was God. But who is the man behind the beard? And so uh, just to kind of get us all on board as quickly as I can before we push off uh, this week, in part one of this series, we looked at this idea of who Jesus claimed to be. Uh, then in part two, we look at what did Jesus come to do? What, what, was it, what was all the fuss about when Jesus came to earth? And if, if that idea piques your interest, or maybe you want to find out a little bit more, or maybe you think that would address a question that someone you know is asking, then I would encourage you to jump on uh, to our Facebook or our Instagram or our SoundCloud. It's all the same handle, at BeyondChurchAU. Uh, and you'll be able to find the first two parts of this message series if uh, you want to catch up. But really tonight, as we land the plane on this series, uh, I'm going to really be talking to followers of Jesus, because we're going to be talking tonight about what, what did the man behind the beard, and how did the man behind the beard specifically call people who stick their hand up and say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, how did he call them to live in the world? How did he, how did he call them to interact with people? How did he call them to think about people? And if you're not a follower of Jesus here, this is a great opportunity for you to maybe get a sneak peek behind the scenes of what it, what it was like and what Jesus actually said. Because I don't know all of your stories, but I, I, my chances are, and I would be um, willing to, to little wager a little bet on it, that some of the reasons that you push back against Christianity have nothing to do with Jesus. But they have everything to do with the church. And they have everything to do with the, the things and the atrocities that the church has committed. And they have nothing so much to do with Jesus, but maybe more to do with his followers. Because maybe you've had a bad experience. Or maybe they said something to you that was incredibly offensive and they had no right to say to you. And you're wondering, like, if this Jesus guy is so great, what's it all about? And so tonight my aim is not to get you to follow Jesus. My aim is just to kind of give you a glimpse of what Jesus actually said and what the man behind the beard actually talked about with his followers. Uh, Because, uh, and the, the, uh, sorry, when you lose your place and you have a mental blank. Uh, Because we believe that, uh, and we talked about it, and we mentioned it last week, that when Jesus walked the earth, the people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he liked them back. That was not odd. In fact, everywhere Jesus went, he attracted a crowd. And the crowds that would come and the crowds that would listen to Jesus were the people who were most uncomfortable in the church setting, in a religious setting, in the temple setting of that day and age. The people who pushed back against religion in general were most comfortable with Jesus. And the reason that it's so important for us to talk about this, and particularly for followers of Jesus, to get this in the front of their minds, is because the church is Jesus' body. Not just our church, but all the churches that, that exist around the world, we are His body. And what that means for us as followers of Jesus, that what was true of Jesus personally, should be true of us collectively. What was true of Jesus personally should be true of us collectively not as us individually because you know we believe that Jesus was perfect and we believe that Jesus is God no one's that good but but what uh, is true of Jesus personally should be true of us when we're gathered together 
And what that means is that the church should be the most likable group of people in the community. We should be the most likable group of people in the community and when people look in, they should say, you know what, I I don't know why they believe that, I don't believe that, but I'm really glad they're in our community. I am so thankful they're in our community. I am so thankful for their generosity. I am so thankful for the way they serve. In fact, if they did not exist in our community, there would be a hole that needs to be filled. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that tonight. Because in order to be a community that uh, what was true of Jesus personally is true of us collectively, we need to be in the habit of resisting the things that make church unnecessarily resistible. There are a whole heap of things that make church unnecessarily resistible. And what that means for us is we want to remove every single barrier that stands between a person and a relationship with their Heavenly Father, except for the one barrier we can't remove, which is Jesus. And that's why we're talking about it. In fact, if you've been with us a while, we actually, we say how we do this, how we um, resist the things that make church unnecessarily resistible. It's one of our core values. We say it this way, that we will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Jesus. In order to reach people no one's reaching, we'll have to do things that no one is doing. Why, why do we approach it that way? Well, simply put, Jesus. And more specifically, because when we open and read the four biographies that were written by Matthew, that were written by Mark, that were written by Luke, and that were written by Jesus' best mate, John, Jesus actually paints an incredibly different picture of the way he viewed people in the world to us today and even to the culture back then. What do I mean by that? Well, you and I, we all have adjectives that we describe people and groups of people by. You have your school friends, you have your church friends, you have your work friends, you have your non-work friends, you have your collection of friends. And and, and this is just a natural thing. We group people into categories based on their adjectives. Oh, who's that? That's my mate from work. Who's that? Oh, that's that's my bros. They're my boys. They're my girls. And we have all these adjectives that we label people with. And and maybe you, or maybe you haven't, these are just to kind of get you thinking. Maybe you'd label people like this. They're the rich people. They're not like me. Or maybe you are a rich person. They're not like me. I'm I'm one of the rich people. They're not one of the rich people. Maybe if you're uh, on social media, they're one of the pretty people. Maybe you're, I don't feel like I'm one of the pretty people. I don't fit in. I don't belong. This is my favorite one because we all have this group, regardless of uh, who you are or where you be. They're my people. They're my people over there. Who are they? They're my people. What about those people? No, they're your people. I wouldn't be with your people. I want to be with my people. And when you're in that new relationship, well, who should we hang out with? We should hang out with my friends, not your friends, because my friends are cooler than your friends. And there's that, there's that tension there. And Jesus, and, and we just, this is just natural within us. And this is, was natural within the people who lived in the society 2,000 years ago and the culture 2,000 years ago that Jesus walked into. But Jesus talked about viewing people and talked about viewing the world in a completely different way. He used different adjectives. But just to show you that, that, that those people weren't much different from us, I thought, we'll, we'll just jump into the, uh, Luke, a historian's account. And this is what Luke says. He says, tax collectors and notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus 
teach. Right, straight away, two, two, two groups. Tax collectors, notorious sinners, two adjectives. And then he goes on, this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, two adjectives, complain that he was associating with such sinful people, another adjective. He even ate with them. And Jesus has got this crowd that's full of tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and teachers of religious law, two groups that gave adjectives to each other and gave adjectives to themselves. And Jesus, being, he was a great teacher. He was like the master teacher. And what he does is he taught both groups at the same time how to rethink their adjectives. And what he does for us tonight, if you're a follower of Jesus, is he shows us the way that we should prioritize people and the way we should interact with people in our everyday life. And he does this today, but he did it 2,000 years ago through teaching three parables. And if you don't know what, these, uh, what a parable is, it's just a, a story that we would know, like an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So it's a story that talks about here, but it's got some, there's a hidden agenda. There. It's pointing uh, to something beyond this world as well. And in fact, tonight, as we go through really briefly these three parables, these three stories, uh, even if you have no church experience at all, you're probably going to listen to some of these and be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of this concept. I've heard of this. I've heard people toss that around. I actually didn't know it was from the Bible. I had no idea Jesus taught on this 2,000 years ago. So let's launch in. Uh, Jesus says, so, Jesus told the story. If a man has uh, has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Now, to us, that might seem like a serious question. Like, well, what would they do? Like, we're, we're not, I don't know, unless we've got some people who, I don't know, herders, sheepers, whatever. People, people who work on a farm, farmers, <laughs> who work with sheep. Ah, yeah, look, I just drink coffee and think about things no one else thinks about all week. So I'm like, no adjectives. And so, but this, the community that Jesus was speaking to would have known exactly the point he was trying to get at. In fact, it's almost silly that Jesus asked this question because they were so familiar with shepherds. They were so familiar with how shepherds thought and the way they they acted. And So Jesus answers the question. He says, why don't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And they're all like, yeah, of course, duh. And we're all like, no, he's got 99. Why would you need to go after the one? We we think differently, but these people, they would have been like, no, no, no. You leave the 99. They're together. They're safe. I'm going to go after the one. And then he says, and, and when he's found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And everyone's kind of giggling a bit. They're like, well, maybe not joyfully. He's probably a little bit annoyed. But sure, yeah, he'll bring it back to the, to the 99. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. And everyone at this point is like, okay, like, we get that you're overplaying it a little bit. It's a bit of hyperbole, but we get the point, okay? And we get the point as well, don't we? Because when we lose something of value, we focus on what's lost to the neglect of what's unlost. When we lose something that's really important to us, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter that, that we have things that are not lost. I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I went on a cruise some of you already know this story, uh, but some of you don't. My wife and I went on a cruise, and uh, we went kind of cruising through the Pacific Islands, and there was one day we stopped uh, on one of the islands, and we're, we're on the beach, and it's, it's beautiful reef. And so we're thinking, right, let's go snorkeling. And we're sitting under this palm tree, kind of, you know, being sun smart and stuff, and putting on the sunscreen and getting ready for, to go out snorkeling. And my wife turns to me, and 
being the, the great wife that she is, she says, do you think you should take your wedding ring off? I mean, you've put sunscreen on, it might be cold in the water, maybe finger shrinks, I don't know. And I said, no, this is li- literally what I did. My ring never comes off. Like waving it, waving it. So like, and, and Emma like didn't say anything, didn't roll her eyes, was just like, okay, cool. And I could tell, like, we'll have a conversation about this later, but we just kind of moved past that. And we jumped, like, we went in and we were snorkeling. And I kid you not, literally, like, less than 45 seconds as we're in, like, snorkeling, all of a sudden I look down at my hand, I'm like... And I'm, like, waving it at Emma, like, I've lost my ring. Like, my ring is gone. And all of a sudden, in that moment, I did not care that my phone was safe and secure on the beach. I did not care that I knew where my wallet was. I did not care that I knew where my room key was and I knew where all my clothes was because I was focusing on what was lost to the neglect of what was unlost. Now, unfortunately, there was no great story. I had to go out. This is is not my original wedding ring. I had to go buy another one. So the the moral of the story is, guys, listen to your wife. (laughs) But now now he's kind of of piqued uh, their interest a little bit and and he kind of moves straight past it and he goes on. He says, or suppose, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. He's talking to the ladies here and they're like, okay. Um, Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? Now, this is kind of like this, um, there's a number of different ways that scholars take this um, little piece, but what what they think uh, is the best explanation is that women in that culture would have like a dowry. And so they would wear kind of like a head, uh, headband and there would be 10 coins sewn into the headband. Or maybe they would wear like a shawl and there would be 10 coins thrown into the shawl. And it was kind of like a little bit of like enticing for the fellas. Like, hey, if you marry me, you get the coins as well. Um, and we kind of look at that and we're like, oh, that's a little bit barbaric. But I kind of like to think it was the pre-Instagram bikini shot before the Instagram bikini shot. The Instagram bikini shot is like, look at me. This is what you get if you date me. Well, this was just like, these are the coins that you get if you marry me kind of thing. And so... They knew what would happen if you lost one. All the dads in the audience were sitting there and they were like, you, you, would, you better go find that coin that I sewed on your head. Like, you are not leaving the house until you find that coin, young lady. And so every, all the girls knew that you went and you swept the house and you, 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 uh, you went through the house until you found it. And when she finds it, she will carry it in her friends, uh, with her, she'll, sorry, she'll call in her friends and neighbours saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost Again, a little bit of a hyperbole, but Jesus is really driving home this point. That when we lose something of great value, we will go to great lengths to find it. Maybe some of us are sitting here and we're like, well, I haven't really lost anything of great value recently. And so it's hard to relate, but I guarantee you, if you have not cleaned your car in months or years, or if you have not cleaned your room in months or years, and you suddenly lose your phone, the world has ended. Like the apocalypse, all of a sudden you are the neatest, tidiest person ever. Like you, you're in that car and you're like throwing stuff everywhere. Like you're in your room, your room is spotless. Because when we lose something that's important, when we lose something that's valuable to us, we will go to extraordinary lengths to find it. And now he's piqued their interest a little bit. The crowd is there and he's piqued their interest. And so Jesus then goes on to tell a parable about a lost son. And this, uh, there was a father in this story that had two sons, an older son and a younger son. And the younger son kind of got fed up with the dad. 
And he essentially went to his dad and in the most politest, politest way possible that you can say this to uh, a father or to someone older than you, he said, Dad, you're kind of living too long. Dad, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to wait till you die to get my inheritance. So let me just throw it on the table, Dad. Could you pretend that you're dead, liquidate the business, liquidate the farm and give me my half right now? Because I'm going to get it anyway, Dad. I'm going to get it anyway, so I may as well get it now, right? And everyone in the crowd was thinking the same thing. You should take a club and you should beat that boy. There is no way that he should get away with saying that. But then Jesus says something outrageous. He says the father did it. He liquidated all his stocks. He liquidated his share of the business and he gave it to his son. And the reason he did it was because he knew the son was relationally disconnected. And he wanted to choose the shortest possible route back to a relationship with his son. This son, he'd been in the house for years. He had his headphones on, wouldn't engage in conversations, always asked out, how's the day going? It's fine. What's happening in your life? Nothing. Same old thing. And the father knew that he was disconnected. So he liquidated everything in order to make the shortest route back to his son. And everyone in that culture would have branded him a fool. And you know the story. The son takes the earnings and he goes overseas, maybe on a nice European holiday, and he lives it up. He's living in five-star luxury. He buys a little villa in the south of France. He's throwing extravagant parties. He's inviting supermodels. He's inviting sports stars. And, and he's hanging out. He's living the life. And then the money dries up. We don't know if it's a couple of weeks or a couple of months or a couple of years. But all of a sudden... The money dries up. And the son is too proud to go home, and so for a period of time he tries to get a job and work for a little bit. But the job that he's working at doesn't give him enough money to survive or rent a place or even buy food. In fact, the son is so desperate that he starts to eat the food of the pigs that he's looking after. His job was looking after pigs, and he started to eat their food. He was so desperate. And as he's sitting there in pig slop, he realizes that he is disconnected. And he starts to think of home. And he starts to think of his father and his older brother and his family. And he's thinking of home and he's missing them. And he's wondering if home is missing him. And he thinks to himself, I bet you they're not missing me. I bet you they don't care. I bet you they want nothing to do with me at all. But in the midst of this situation, he says, maybe, maybe I can go back and maybe I can beg and maybe I can plead with my father that if, if, if I can come back in, not as a son, not as part of the family, but a servant, because at least I know that at my father's house, the servants have a room to live in. They have a bed, a pillow to rest their heads. At least I know they have food on the table and it's got to be better than this. And so I'm going to go to my father and I'm not going to ask him to to take me back as as his son. I'm going to ask him to take me back as a servant, knowing full well that that even that, even that would be probably too kind for what I deserve. And so he writes this little speech, he prepares it, and then he begins to go back home. And the audience that Jesus is talking to is probably much like the audience here tonight, the community that's gathered here tonight. 
There are some people in there probably thinking like, I don't know if God's actually missing me. And maybe there are some of you sitting there and thinking, you know what, I know I'm disconnected from God. But I'll tell you what, the reason I'm disconnected is because I don't know if I want to connect and be like that version of Christianity that I've seen. I, I'm afraid that if I connect, it'll look like something I don't want it to look like. And in the midst of the audience there, there's a group of Pharisees looking at those tax collectors and they go, Jesus, God isn't missing those sinners. He's disgusted by them. And the sinners are sitting there looking at the ground. And they're saying, you know what? They're right. God's not missing us. He's disgusted by us. But they want to find out what happens to the son when he goes back to his father. And so Jesus continues. He says, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with with. And there's a word there. There's a space there. And the Pharisees are probably thinking he was filled with anger, wasn't he? He was filled with hate. He was filled with resentment. He was filled with rage, with bitterness. Jesus says, no. He was filled with compassion. And they look at me like, what? He was filled with compassion? Have you forgot the story that you just told? Because in the story you just told, the father should not be filled with compassion. He should want nothing to do with his son. And Jesus would have looked him right in the eyes and said, you know what, you're right. He should have had nothing to do with his son. He would have wanted nothing to do with his son if he thought about people the way that you think about people. But he doesn't think about people the way you do. He doesn't use the adjectives that you use. And it says he ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And that, that might seem like a little bit like weird where he kissed him. Like, but in that day and age, that was massive. Because his son, he's been hanging out with pigs and it's like uh, Jewish law that you don't eat anything from a pig. And so the father has kissed his son knowing full well where he's been, knowing what he's been up to and he kisses him, making himself unclean all because he wants a relationship with his son. And some of you, you're probably maybe asking the question, well... Chris, why didn't, he, why didn't he go after the son when he saw him leaving the first time? Why didn't he run out and stop him? It's because the father wasn't concerned with knowing where his son was geographically. In fact, the whole time the son was away, the father probably knew exactly where he was. But he wanted a relationship with his son. He didn't want to just know where he was, know what he was up to. He wanted a genuine relationship with his son. And he sees his son walking back down the road and he sees the disconnected son begin to reconnect. And God says, Jesus says, if you want to lean in really close, if you want to listen and understand how God views people, this is how God views people. And he says this. He says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost, but now he is found. The son was disconnected and now he is connected. And every person that you are eyeball to eyeball with, every person that you interact with in your world, your heavenly father and Jesus views in one of two ways, either connected to their heavenly father or disconnected from their heavenly father. People want to know why did Jesus spend so much time with people who were disconnected from God? 
the reason Jesus spent so much time with people who were disconnected from God is because they were disconnected from God. The reason why Jesus spent so much time with people who were far from God is because they were far from God. There's a reason Jesus wasn't hanging out in the temple all day. Because God knows where the connected people are. Jesus didn't come for the connected. He came for the disconnected. And maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you're sitting here and you think, well, that's great, but what is, where does the rubber hit the road? What, is that, what does that move us to? What does that look like? What's the, what's, give me something practical I can take away. And I want to give you something practical, but before I do, we need to realize one thing. That the gravitational pull of the local church is to the connected. The gravitational pull of the local church is always to those people who are connected. And so we have to realize that. We have to realize that our tendency is always towards people who know the right things, know what to say. Because it's easier to interact with people who are connected than people who don't know the way things should be done. And they don't know what they don't know, which is silly when you think about it. So a gravitational pull of the church is always to the connected. But when we do that, we run the risk of misprioritizing people. And when we always focus on the connected, what we do is we start to label people who are disconnected. And all of a sudden, those labels that we give to people run down into our emotions. And we start putting people into boxes and into categories that they do not and should not ever be put into. And then we start to get mean when the people that we label don't agree with us. And we start to get angry when their views and values differ from our views and values. And over time, we become just like the Pharisees who put adjectives on everyone who didn't fit their mold. But there's some good news that we don't ever have to get to that place. We do not and should not and will not ever get to a place where we label people because they do not share our views and values. And so we, we have this thing here at Beyond, it's called For Monday. Because uh, we believe there's no point coming to church on Sunday un- unless it benefits you, unless it helps you for Monday. And so we've, there are so many ways that you could give an application point to this. There are so many things that we could say do, but we thought we would just give you the simplest, easiest stepping stone to help you prioritize the disconnected over the coming weeks. And it's this, invite. On your seat, we've got some invite cards. Because next week is Easter. And the week after Easter, we are launching a brand new series called I Can't Believe in a God Who. And the whole, our whole agenda with that series is to get you to ask questions. We want to show you that God cares about your questions and we care about your questions and we want you to keep asking good questions even if people can't give you an answer yet. Maybe you've just not found the right person to ask your question to. And maybe there are some of you a little bit there and you've been in church around a a little bit uh, for a while and maybe you're a little bit cynical and you're like, any reason you guys want us to invite is because you you want lots of people here and you you want this place full of people so that when you guys get up the front and you speak and you sing, it'll feel good for you. No, it couldn't be further from the truth. We want you to invite because when you invite people, the things that concern you change. When you invite someone and they come along to church, you are no longer concerned about connected people because connected people know what to do. You begin to think about and and frame about and you're concerned about the things that disconnected people are concerned about. Like are the lights on in the car park? 
There's someone telling me which way I should go. And when you've got your friend, you're thinking to yourself, I really hope that people are nice to them. I really hope that no one says anything awkward. I really hope they feel welcomed. I really hope that someone engages in a conversation and invites them out to dinner afterwards. I really hope that the music doesn't suck. I really hope that guy out the front, whoever is speaking, what guy, whatever girl it is, I hope it's not awkward. I hope they don't say something to offend someone. I hope they they let them know that if they're not a Christian, they don't have to do some of the things that are required of Christians. I, I hope that they feel connected. And when you invite people, the things that you prioritize and the things you begin to think about all lean towards disconnected people. And so as we land the plane on this series, as we bring it to a close, I want to encourage you. Keep up the good work. Let's continue to be a community that does anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Jesus. Let's continue to be a community that assumes that every week there are guests among us. Let's continue to be a community that allows people to ask questions and explore their faith in a safe environment. Let's continue to be a community that lets people belong well and truly before they believe anything that we believe. Let's continue to push the boundaries of what we're doing and continue to really remove every single obstacle between someone and a relationship with their heavenly Father. Because the thing that lights up our heavenly Father's heart is not us. It's people who are far from God and people who are disconnected that begin to reconnect. Let's continue to prioritise this week and forever the people that the man behind the beard prioritised, the disconnected. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teachings of Jesus that are preserved uh, in history. We thank you that these teachings were so prominent that when Luke went around and interviewed people that everyone was talking about this, this time that a crowd was gathered and Jesus spoke about these three parables, a parable of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And Heavenly Father, tonight, I pray for, for those of us who, uh, it's natural to, to, uh, when you're a part of a community to prioritize the connected. But Lord, that's not what you call us to. Lord, you call us to do anything short of sin, to break down every obstacle that stands between people and the Heavenly Father. And so just as the man behind the beard hung out with people who were disconnected, so too may our heart break for the disconnected. May we continue to create environments where disconnected people feel welcome and begin to reconnect. And so, Lord, as we move into Easter... We pray that we would have an opportunity to invite people. An opportunity and let's not even pray for an opportunity, let's just invite people. There's no opportunity needed. Lord, your heart is for, for people who, uh, who are disconnected or who don't know you to get to know you. So for us, let's not even pray. That's a silly prayer. Let's just invite people. And Father, for the people who come along and join us on Easter, who join us for the launch of our series and for people who are here tonight, may they realize that the heart of their heavenly father is not for them to follow a bunch of rules but for them to connect it's as simple as that that you want to know them that you care about them but you care about them so much that you will not force yourself on them because you don't want to know where they are 
You know where they are. You want a relationship with them. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.